This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Elizabeth Gilbert, author of nine books, including the blockbuster Eat, Pray, Love, in conversation with author and illustrator Lisa Congdon about creativity, magic, fear, and grief. This event was recorded on December 1st, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I only have hair on this side. They switched chairs on us the last minute. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. Liz, I am so happy to be here. And hello, everyone. Um, I live in Portland now, but this is my hometown where I lived for 25 years. So I'm just so excited to be back and so honored to be on stage with you. I wanted to start by mentioning that we have probably more than this in common, but three things that I discovered. One. We are both descended from dairy farmers. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> um, we are only a year and a half apart in age, which means we would have like hung then, up. yeah, like hung. <laughs> we would have gotten high yeah. together behind the tennis courts. Right. And we are both named Elizabeth. Did you know that my name is no. Elizabeth also? So. Um, my name is spelled with an S, and when I was a little girl, my mom decided that she wanted my nickname to be Lisa. So, anyway, but it's, it's the so I had Liz. Uh, yeah, exactly. The post. <laughs> By the way, Lisa's mom is here tonight. Yes, yes. <laughs> so watch your language. <laughs> yes. So I want to start by talking about your latest book, Big Magic. Um, when I, the first time I ever heard it, I got into my car and I turned on the radio and I heard you talking to Dave Miller, who is a Portland, I live in Portland now, so he's a Portland radio personality. Um, and he, ha he, he was having you read this list of fears that hold us back from creative living. And I will never, ever forget hearing you read this list. Like, it literally made me, I wanted to pull over and say, what is going on here? Um, the section of, that, of the book is called Scary, Scary, Scary. <laughs> and I'm only going to have you read one thing from the book tonight, and this is the first thing. And there, we'll start, start here, and then read the list of fears. Awesome. I forgot my glasses. So oh, sorry. Be super fun. <laughs> um, fortunately, I have very long arms. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about courage now. If you already have the courage to bring forth the jewels that are hidden within you, terrific. You're probably already doing really interesting stuff with your life and you don't need this book. Rock on. <laughs> but if you don't have the courage, let's try to get you some because creative living is a path for the brave. We all know this. And we all know that when courage dies, creativity dies with it. We all know that fear is a desolate boneyard where our dreams go to desiccate in the hot sun. 
This is common knowledge. Sometimes we just don't know what to do about it. Let me list for you some of the many ways in which you might be afraid to live a more creative life. You're afraid you have no talent. You're afraid you'll be rejected or criticized or ridiculed or misunderstood or, worst of all, ignored. You're afraid there's no market for your creativity and therefore no point in pursuing it. You're afraid somebody else already did it better. You're afraid everybody else already did it better. You're afraid somebody will steal your ideas, so it's safer to keep them hidden forever in the dark. <laughs> You're afraid your work won't be taken seriously. You're afraid your work isn't politically, emotionally, or artistically important enough to change anyone's life. You're afraid your dreams are embarrassing. You're afraid that someday you'll look back on your creative endeavors as having been a giant waste of time, effort, and money. You're afraid you don't have the right kind of discipline. You're afraid you don't have the right kind of workspace or financial freedom or empty hours in which to focus on invention or exploration. You're afraid you don't have the right kind of training or degree. You're afraid you're too fat. <laughs> I don't know what this has to do with creativity exactly, but experience has taught me that most of us are afraid we're too fat, so let's just put that <laughs> on the anxiety list for good measure. You're afraid of being exposed as a hack or a fool or a dilettante or a narcissist. You're afraid of upsetting your family with what you may reveal. You're afraid of what your peers and coworkers will say if you express your personal truths aloud. You're afraid of unleashing your innermost demons and you really don't want to <laughs> encounter your innermost demons. You're afraid your best work is behind you. You're afraid you never had any best work to begin with. You're afraid you neglected your creativity for so long that now you can never get it back. You're afraid you're too old to start. You're afraid you're too young to start. You're afraid because something went well in your life once, so obviously nothing can ever go well again. <laughs> You're afraid because nothing has ever gone well in your life, so why bother trying? You're afraid of being a one-hit wonder. You're afraid of being a no-hit wonder. Listen, I don't have all day here, so I'm not going to keep listing fears. <laughs> it's a bottomless list and a depressing one. I will just wrap up my summary this way. Scary, scary, scary. Everything is so goddamn scary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reading that. So I think most people understand on an intellectual level that fear causes us to make terrible decisions. It causes us to feel terrible. It even, it, it, it literally is a block to our creativity. But many people also believe that the antidote to fear is fearlessness. But yeah. what you argue is that the antidote is actually courage. So. Talk a little bit about the difference between fearlessness and courage and what courage can do for us that fearlessness can't. So I have no interest in becoming fearless. Um, I've, I, I say in the book, I have met a few people in my life who I would describe as fearless and they were sociopaths. <laughs> um, and you look in their eyes and there's something missing and there's like a reptilian sort of horror movie going on behind. And they... And they are dangerous to themselves and others and to you. And you should cross the street <laughs> when you see them coming. Um, and I think that we live in a culture that really celebrates fearlessness. And all the language around fear is this very, like, Navy SEAL kind of, like, kick fear in the ass, punch it in the face, show it. It's, like, so violent. And, and I also know that anything in my life that I have ever fought has fought me back. Anything. Anyone, anything that I've ever fought that's like a rule of the... You punch, you get punched right back. And any time I've ever tried to punch out fear, it roars up and reminds me quite thoroughly that it's stronger than me. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, like pins me down. And so it's a befriending. So I think the difference between fear and courage, fearlessness and courage is fearlessness is I, I feel nothing. And courage is I feel everything and I'm doing this anyway. 
Um, and, and so, you know, courage has like shaky legs and a, and a trembly voice and does it anyway. And, and I've just, I've made such like fear for me at this point, there's other emotions I'm still really haven't befriended in my life, but that one is like, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you again, come in, have a seat, you know? Um, and, and just letting it be there in the room, recognizing that the reason it's there is because our evolutionary development taught us that anything that is unknown might kill us. And creativity is always unknown. So anytime you embark on any creativity, you're entering into a landscape where you do not know how it's going to end, and your fear thinks, this literally means we're all going to die in a bloodbath. Like, you could be writing a poem, and your fear's like, <laughs> we're going to die. That's what it feels like. You know, and so there's a lot of sort of tenderness that I have toward fear of just saying, like, just, just trying some free verse, so far no one's died from this. You know, but it doesn't know what it is, and so it just gets freaked out, and it needs to be included and loved, not, not fought. I think another thing about fear is that it, it, when we get in touch with our sort of creative power, it brings up fear. So when I, I wrote this book in 2012, uh, or that came out in 2012 called Art Inc., and I entitled the first chapter, I Am an Artist. In that chapter, I wrote about this idea of proclaiming yourself a creative person mm -hmm. as the sort of first step. Because I was beginning to understand that the fear associated with feeling your own creative power for myself and for the, my friends was terrifying. You know, I experienced it as feeling like a fraud for a period of time. I noticed other people experiencing it as, oh, this is arrogant or selfish mm -hmm. to be a creative person. And I even had the word humility tattooed on my wrist to remind me to stay humble, you know, as my art career started to take off. But I think you would argue that humility and this idea of what you call creative entitlement are actually not at odds, mm -hmm. right? That they can live together harmoniously. So what is creative entitlement? What is this thing that we need to own? And why are we so conditioned to sort of not feel it? Um, great question and well put. <laughs> um, creative entitlement, I think of the, the poet David White says that, that one of the qualities that you have to cultivate in order to have a spiritual and creative life is what he calls the arrogance of belonging. And, and I love the reappropriation of the word arrogance in, in that sketch. And what the arrogance of belonging is, is it's not pumping your fist in the air and saying, I am the best. It is, it is putting a hand on your heart and saying, I am. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. It's like, I I'm recognizing that I'm here and I'm part of this story. I'm part of the human family. I'm part of what we're, what we're all creating here. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm not here, you know? Um, and it doesn't have to be the best. Um, it, it, there's a great Leonard Cohen poem in his recent book where he says something like, you know, if, if there were no other artist in the world, my art would be very important. Right. <laughs> um, and he said, but there are, and they're really good, so I'm willing to take my place at the end of the line and to keep making art. You know, that's the arrogance of belonging, which says, I belong in the line. I'm not sure whether I belong at the front of the line or the back of the line, but I'm, I'm going to put myself in the line al along with all of this. The humility that I think is intrinsic in that is not the false humility mm. of um, self-deprecation, which is not humility, but a kind of a sin. Um, self-deprecation at that level is a, is a sort of violation of the remarkableness of you, the exceptionalness of you, the extraordinary miracle of a human life. It's a sort of a sin to pretend that that's not a big deal, 
you know, that you exist um, and that you have consciousness and that you have dreams and that you're here. It's, it's extraordinary. The humility is how can I be in service to the art? How can I be in service to these ideas? Um, you know, like more and more lately for me, it's I am a servant of this work. That's the humility. The humility is, but in order to do that, I have to say I'm a creator. Um, I'm a creator and I'm a servant of this work. I'm not a servant of my audience and I'm not a servant of the market and I'm not a servant of my ego. I'm a servant of the work. That's, that's the appropriate use of humility and the arrogance of belonging allows you to, to stand up on your own two feet and, and barefoot and say that. Yeah. Great. Thank yeah. <laughs> Let's talk for a little bit about curiosity. Um, one of the things that I learned from, from you is this notion, and it's not something I actually ever really thought about as a creative person, but this notion that creative genius comes from the outside and not from the inside. It's not something we have or don't have. It's something we get from being curious. So creative ideas are things that come to you, not that you are born with. So first, I'm curious how you came to discover and understand this in your own journey. Can we talk about mysticism now? <laughs> Sure. Um, you know, like, I, let's just get freaky. We're in California. Um, you know, it's, how I, how I learned it was by experiencing it. You know, and the way that I describe the creative experience is how human beings have always experienced it, which is this very spooky business where, you know, you're just sort of going about your your life and you've got your head full of dumb mundane thoughts and your problems and your issues and then an idea arrives and will not leave you alone <laughs> and it's kind of a haunting mm -hmm. it's kind of a job interview you know the idea is like who are you and what can you do for me you know um, I would like to be made manifest please and I'm looking for a human collaborator <laughs> um, are you the one, you know? And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not smart enough. No, I'm not. I don't have any funds. No, I can't. I'm already working. And it's like, hey, 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 yeah. hey. And that's the way I've always experienced it. I don't know why these particular things stir me, but I'm really obedient and really, like, I think my greatest discipline is that I pay attention to that. So when something tingles me that way. When an idea comes to me, I will give it an audience um, and, I will, and I will give it its due. But, but that's not just how I do it. That's how all humans experience ideas. And even the most rational, empirical, sort of scientific thinkers who would reject any mystery, when they talk about their great ideas, you listen to how they say that those ideas arrived. And they will say, the idea came to me. They use that exact language. Even though if you pinned them down on it, they would totally deny it, and they would say, I generated it from my own genius um, because I am a brilliant man. You know, like they, they, they would have no humility about right. the, the weird mystery, weird in the like weird sister's kind of Shakespearean sense of the word weird, the truly spooky notion of how this stuff arrives. Um, so... And I, can I just tell a quick story yes, that I love? Please. You're like, no, you're not allowed to tell any stories. Um, Next question. I, uh, <laughs> so my, my dear beloved friend Martha Beck um, 
tells a story about how when she was getting her third degree from Harvard, like we also have, um, <laughs> she was working on her thesis and she was writing about women who had succeeded remarkably in fields where women do not traditionally appear, who had like succeeded extraordinarily. And they weren't even linked fields. It was just women who were in a place where no women should belong and they were doing incredibly well. Because she wanted to know how they had gotten there. And so she would sit down and do these interviews with these women and she would bring her sociological data questions and they would answer with these very business school answers about like creating contacts and having mentors and being disciplined and putting down lists of your aspirations and blah, blah, blah. And she'd be sort of falling asleep on her... <laughs> And, and, and she just kept feeling like there was more, and she would push and push and push, and they would just continue answering. And then finally she said every single freaking interview, she would push to a point where finally they would like look over their shoulder, every one of these women, they'd say, can you turn the recorder off? <laughs> and then they would lean in and they would say, do you want to know what really happened? And then they would report a mystical experience. And they would say, I had a vision, I heard a voice, there was a dream, I saw a sign, a bird came, and, you know, I decided to follow it. You know, uh, you know, like something that was so totally irrational, and they, the only difference that they ended up expressing about themselves and those who were not in their positions was that they had obeyed it, that they had done something completely irrational based on signals, signs, feelings, intuition, magic. And she left Harvard very quickly after that, <laughs> and became a mystic. Because <laughs> she was like, yeah, I'm so much more interested in this than I am in the business school version of this. So where does curiosity come in then? Um, you know, you sort of rail against passion a little bit. Like, yeah. I think we all sort of think the creativity should be this thing that comes to us and feels good all of the time and ideas flow, right? And yet, that's not reality. Really, what often happens is, um, you know, we're, we have ideas and then they lead to other ideas that lead to other ideas. So maybe some of the initial flashes come from these mystical experiences, but then where, where does curiosity play into that? Because I know curiosity plays a big role in how we generate the work that we do. Yeah. I mean, my feeling on passion is if you've got it, you right. have what I like to call not a problem, you know, and you don't need this conversation. You don't need these books. I want to take your seminar, you know, um, and, and you may have it. You may have it at times. You may not. Have, it, it can. Passion is incredibly un, unpredictable. Right. Um, and and it's, it's very much at the whims of the gods. It really does come and go. And when you've got it, ride it. And when you don't, back down and rely on curiosity because curiosity is a much more mild, gentle impulse where passion is like, burn your house down, get divorced, move to another country, you know, get a face tattoo, you know, like curiosity is like, pottery's interesting, you know? Um, and it's not, you don't have to like sacrifice 
passion demands the full sacrifice. Yes. And, and curiosity just asks you to turn your head a quarter of an inch and look a little closer at something that's got your interest. And to me, I think curiosity is a series of clues on a great scavenger hunt um, where you can really, and there's, t I've had things in my life that I've created out of passion, but mostly of the stuff that I've done. If I waited for passion to strike, I would have written maybe one book. Will you tell us maybe even just the short version of the story of um, your book uh, that grew from your interest in gardening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is a really good example. So I didn't have any, when I'm in a place where I don't have any ideas and I don't have any, feel any passion and I'm not like on, when my head's not on fire, um, which is most Tuesdays, <laughs> you know, what I pay attention to and it's almost like, like a water diviner with a divining rod, you know, I walk around and like, I'm like, what's got me kind of like, yeep, like there's a little blip on the radar. And I was at this period, I had just bought a house, it had a small little plot in the backyard, and I thought, I'd like to put in a garden. And it wasn't like, I must garden, I will be master of gardening. It was like, I'd like to look out my window and see some herbs. You know, and and maybe some really no, low maintenance. And you flowers. bought this place out of the city. This was yeah. totally new for you. Yeah, I mean, I grew up on a farm, so gardening was familiar. But I had rejected farm life for thirty <laughs> years. But then, despite myself, it turned out I had actually learned some of the stuff my mom had taught me. And so I was just messing around with it, and it was completely just this is nice. You know, this is nice. I want to do this. I want, you know, and then, but because I have a curious mind and because I pay attention to it, what I started to notice over the course of the summer of creating this garden is that I got really, I wanted to know the history of the plants. And I wanted to know, because my sister is like a um, fascist about local plants and <laughs> she's a big gardener. So she was like, oh, you can't do that. That's not local to New Jersey. This is not blah, blah, blah. Water supply, birds, <laughs> pollinators. I was like, whoa, I, this is more complicated than I thought. So... But then I was like, well, but I've got these things in my yard in this old Victorian house. I've got these like 200-year-old lilacs. Where are they from? Where's this wisteria from? Oh, it's from China. Why? Oh, a missionary brought it here. When? Like 1830. Why were missionaries <laughs> fucking around with plants? Like, <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden I'm like starting to see this, this history of plant migration through human curiosity, trade, beauty, the desire for, you know, and then I'm like, that's kind of interesting. So I look into that. The thing is, I, I'm committed to following the trail. So I look into that and then I realize that a lot of the plant people were women and that a lot, of, and that botany turns out was the only science women were allowed to participate in in the 19th century because flowers. And, um, <laughs> And, and the, some of those women made extraordinary leaps and bounds in botanizing. And then I'm like, well, that, I'd like to read about that. Wait, I might even like to write about that. Do I want to write a nonfiction book about it? Do I want to write, you know, so all of a sudden it's growing and it's growing. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm writing a 500-page novel about a virgin who studies moss <laughs> in the 19th century and who participates in the understanding about the history of evolution. And that is not, like, I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to write this book. Mm -hmm. This was a year and a half after my garden was planted that I started, you know, these things take a while. Mm -hmm. And, but I, you know, I'm playing the long con on all of these ideas. Like, I'll see what you are. There's an, there's an idea I have for a novel that I've had in my head for seven or eight years now. Still, I was just talking about it with my dad this weekend, try, trying it out. I was walking with him. I'm like, what do you think of this? You know, it's, it may or may not ever, sort of come to the front, but it's, there's, I got all sorts of little things on the pots.
So was there a path of curiosity that led to your upcoming book, City of mm -hmm. Girls, which comes out in April? In June. June. June of next year. Yeah. Yes. We're all very excited. So tell us a little there bit was. about that. There okay. was. There are two things. One is that I went to visit my great aunt Lolly, who is 98 and fabulous. And she handed me, she's trying to get, she's like, I'm dying. I got to get rid of all my shit. So I went to visit her <laughs> and she starts giving me all these old books from the family and included in these old books are um, books of, like way out of print books by Alexander Wolcott, who was one of the, the Algonquin round circle table dudes and who is now virtually forgotten but at the time was a gossip columnist and a writer for the New Yorker and it was a collection of profiles he'd written in the New Yorker about famous actresses most of whom I had never heard of because they were stage actresses of the 1930s and 40s and the thing about stage actresses is that once the performance is gone it's gone you know so it's not like a screen actress where you can watch it forever and so and, and the, the, the profiles were so engaging and the women seemed so fascinating. And also I loved that the profiles all took place in the various hotels where these women were living when they were visiting from London and they were in Macbeth or something. And so he would go hang out with them at like the Sherry Netherland and talk to them. And, and you know, this part of me was like, I want to be in that world. I want to hang out with aging British stage actresses in the Sherry Netherland in the 1930s. Hell yeah. So that was one piece of it. The other piece of it was a more sociological desire that I've had for a long time to write a novel about promiscuous women whose lives are not ruined by their sexual desire. Because that is... <laughs> Can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> that is a very hard... Uh, character to find in Western literature because she always ends up under the train wheels, you know? So I was like, I want to write about women who are like hunters mm -hmm. for sexual pleasure, who are having seasons of their lives where they're like pursuing, where they're not, where they're more the predator than the prey, which is an experience that, you know, I've heard about. <laughs> um, <laughs> so combined them and and slowly, I'm going to write a novel about promiscuous theater girls in the 1940s in New York City. And that's what City of Girls is. Yeah. You also wrote this book while you were grieving the loss of Rhea, your lifelong friend and partner of the last few years. Can you talk more about the role of grief in your writing process this time around? Because this was obviously new for you and yeah. how the writing, both the grief influenced your writing and your writing influenced the grief. So here's the weird thing. This is the weird thing about being like navigating creativity and life, which are sort of the same in that you, in Eat, Pray, Love, I wrote about how I think that destiny and free will are sort of, you know that circus horse act where someone's riding on two mm -hmm. horses at the same time and they're galloping and they're on the ring and you've got one foot on this horse and one on the other. And I feel like that's what our lives are like where there's some of it that you're in control of and then there's this other horse, which is the, and, and you try to stay upright with the one you can control and the one you can't control. <laughs> um, and, and that's also true of creativity. It's true of love. It's true of loss. It's true of grief. And so I'd been working on this novel, then Rhea got sick um, I knew I was losing her. It became, you know, the very short version of the story is it just became absolutely unacceptable for me to spend another day pretending that she was not the love of my life, knowing that she was going to be gone very soon. I couldn't, it was hideous. It was like sickening mm -hmm. to me to imagine, because I knew I was going to be with her through her death, to imagine mm -hmm. 
holding her hand and watching her die, and she never knew mm. that she was my love, that I'd never said, I was like, they cannot live in that world. And so I just blew up my whole life to go and be with her and instantly never care to get about that novel again. It's like I have so many, and, and all I did while I was with her was take care of her and write about everything that was happening because I didn't want to forget a minute of the time that we had together. And then very swiftly, right after she died, some, like the great magnet in the sky, made it very clear, write that novel now, which is so counterintuitive because you would think that what I would have wanted to do or needed to do, or, or would it either be don't work at all and just grieve, or write about this person who inhabits my entire imagination and who I've just lost and maybe I can bring back to life. But something new better, mm. and it really gave me the marching orders, which was what you need to do now is remember that you're a novelist, is to do the work that brings you joy, and to write a lighthearted champagne cocktail of a novel about irresponsible, reckless people having a really good time, and that's going to get you on the other side of this grief. Mm. And it, they were right, they were right. Mm. Um, and it was the weirdest, even as I was doing it, I was like, is this advisable? Would a grief counselor say, <laughs> you know, like, is this what I'm supposed to do? Which I think is a question that haunts people when they're grieving. Am I doing this right? Like everything else in life, we're like, am I doing this right? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, yes, you're doing this right. Um, because there isn't a way the worst thing in the world has just happened. So whatever you do now is right, because you just have to figure it out for yourself. So the book, the novel is weirdly not at all about Rhea. That's another story to be told from some other different place in my life at some other different time. Um, but it, it was the cure, not cure, because grief isn't something that needs to be cured. It was the comfort. Um, and it was the way that I brought myself back into the world of the living and reminded myself that I still belong here to the world of the living. Do you think you'll write about her at some point? Yeah, I'm sure I will. Yeah, it's just, um, I'm, in, I'm in dialogue mm -hmm. with myself, with her, and with them about what, when, how mm -hmm. that's going to be. And, um, and I'm so, at this point, this is another really good thing about, like, being almost 50, like I trust that I will be notified when it's time and, and I'll be ready for that when it's time um, and that she'll be very much a part of that. There's no way that somebody as commanding and bossy as Rhea is going to let me write that book by myself. <laughs> like she will be very much involved in that when that, when that day comes. Um, so we're, we're, in, we're in conversation yeah. about it. That's beautiful. So... <clears throat> One of the things that you and I have in common is that we are sort of self-described evangelists um, on social media. Yeah. We, and what I mean by that is that we both talk regularly about our beliefs about what it means to live a good life or what it means to be a creative person. And I'm very curious about your evangelism and sort of at what point in your life or career you began dispensing advice and thoughts on living your best life, and sort of what caused you to sort of take that turn? You know, it's, I've wondered that myself because sometimes I think, why do I care? <laughs> like, I've got money. I could just go be in a nice house, like, eating canapes. Like, why do I care? Why do I give a shit if any of you make a thing? You know, like, 
But I care so much that it's a little bit unhinged. I can relate. But. And I get really upset when I see people stuck, you know, and it makes me anxious. And, and I want them, I want you to, and I think part of it is that I feel like when I see people who aren't, who, who want to be doing something and they're not doing it, I think part of the kind of like physical anxiety that I feel is similar to like watching, it would be like watching an animal that's in a cage and the door is open and the animal's pacing in the cage and you're like, the door's literally open, <laughs> you know, and the animal's like, get me out of this cage, get me out of this cage. You know, like pacing, pacing, and you're like, that door, you know, like, I mean, there's, and there is footage of that when they release chimpanzees back into the wild and they put them in their cages and the jungles all around them and the, the chimpanzees literally do that. They don't know what the wild is, so they're like, ah. So I feel like I want them, jungle, right? This is your actual natural habitat. The cage is an artificial, it's like you've been living in, in, what's that word? Conf confinement? There's a word. Captivity. You've been living in captivity, but that's artificial. What's natural is the wild. And just, I want you to come out here and come into the jungle where you want to be and play and make things and, and make noise and try stuff. And because it kills me to see you in that cage. Um, so I think that's partially why I get so manic about it. Like, really, <laughs> like I go really mental about it. Um, I want it so much. So, yeah. So... Part of my own creative journey was sort of born out of this need to break away from suffering. And in fact, art saved me from my own sadness in a very profound way. And I decided early on to sort of own this experience, even though nearly everything I read until I read Big Magic actually told me my work was therefore not legitimate. Because it didn't come out of suffering. That's make right, you it didn't suffer. come out of suffering. It came out of joy. Yeah. Um, so talk about that. Like, I, 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 that was such a profound thing for me. I'd sort of figured it out on my own and owned it, but hearing that um, was such an important revelation for me, and I'm sure for many other people. Yeah. I mean, we. I blame the German romantics. Um, it might have started, <laughs> but you know, there came to be a vogue, and we've never really lost that vogue of very, very pretentious young men in black clothing, <laughs> talking about how hard it was to make things, you know, and, um, and then taking laudanum and writing dark poetry about it. And it established kind of a, a chic that has never really gone away, you know? Um, like 200 years later, everyone's still sort of holding that up as the model of what an artist is, and it's not my personal belief that that is what art has looked like for most of human history. Most of, um, th thank you. Um, most of, you know, and I also think about that just in terms of my own family, like my, you know, human beings are, are artists, you know, until the age of mass media when you could find other things, where you could passively sit and be entertained. The only way to to sort of get through the the dark hard times is to make stuff, and everyone did, and you know our grand, our great grandparents all did, our grandparents did, my grandparents were dairy farmers, as it sounds like yours were, and they were people who lived in the depression, who literally were almost losing the farm every single month, who had sickness and poverty and way too many kids and no, and they were Swedish, so like didn't believe in pleasure, but they. <laughs> Like, they were Lutherans in northern Minnesota. Like, you can't get a more grim life than that. But they, 
but they were artists and and they made my my grandfather made beautiful silver jewelry my grandmother made everything she made was beautiful and my like they helped to provide me with what i think the definition of art is which is anything you make that's more beautiful than it needs to be so my grandmother made these quilts than they needed because they needed quilts because it was cold and that she also needed to make because they couldn't afford to buy them and it was also a really good use of rags all of those things are very pragmatic there's no reason those quilts needed to be as beautiful as they were she could have just slapped some rags together and thrown them on top of her kids and been like good night you know um <laughs> But instead, she spent months because it pleased her, because it was necessary to her happiness, because it's what we are, you know? And I feel like the entire universe is a big creative, it's a big creative project that's ongoing. You know, there's this static state version of the universe, which is this sort of biblical idea of it that says the universe was created and then it stopped, and we're just rattling around inside of it. And then there's the actual truth about the universe, which is that it's being created, it's creating itself, and and it wants to be more complex, more beautiful, bigger, bolder, stranger. And so it's constantly working with new forms. So literally every single piece of energy in the universe is going in the direction of expansion, invention, creativity, the new strange combinations that make, this is what's happening in real time. So that's what the sort of river and the current of energy of the universe is. And so whenever we step into that and make stuff and participate in that, we are healthy because we're, we're being backed up by literally all the energy of the universe. And whenever we step out of that and take to our beds and, <laughs> and become passive, the reason we get sick is because we're going against the entire grain of the universe. So no wonder you feel heavy and depressed and lethargic because you're in the wrong direction. There's a field that's going this way and you're going in the wrong way or in no way at all. And so you enter into that stream and you're healed because you're being healed by everything else that is also going in that direction. Mm -hmm. So it's unnatural not to make art. Mm. I'm going to admit that I got, I was supposed to stop at the halfway point and tell you to fill out your question cards, but I don't know when the halfway point is because <laughs> I was so thrilled to come out on stage with Liz Gilbert that I wasn't looking at the clock. I so, think we can agree that this is the halfway point. Yeah, so um, if you haven't passed your question card to one of the ushers at the end of the aisle, you should do that now. And also, if you want to quickly jot a question, I'm not going to be able to read very many at the end, but I will take them after I'm done with my questions. So... <laughs> oh, I didn't mean it for it to sound that way, but... <laughs> So I thought we'd have a little fun and do some rapid fires. Yes. Lightning round. Okay. Cats or dogs? Boy, that's tough. <laughs> I love them. D dogs. But like it's by a, it's it's, by a hair, literally. By do you have any animals? I, I've had both and I yeah. currently have yeah. dog. Yeah. Salty or sweet? Fuck. They, why <laughs> choose? Why are you making me like... What, what sick hell is this where I have to choose between salty and sweet? Um, both. Car salted caramel ice cream. <laughs> Night or morning? Morning. Rain or sunshine? Sunshine. Winter or summer? Fuck, summer. Ew. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm swearing so much. I know there's at least one child in this audience. 
memoirs or mysteries? To, I'm gonna say mysteries just because mystery is my favorite word. Okay, snakes or spiders? Spiders. <laughs> Chocolate or caramel? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate. Okay, chihuahuas or Labradors? Labradors. Oh, wait, I know some great chihuahuas. <laughs> Chilabadors. Okay. Lab, labwawas. <laughs> Boredom or anxiety? Anxiety. Oh, interesting. I'm never bored, but I'm often anxious. Yeah. <laughs> Podcasts or music? Podcast. Oh, oh, geez. <laughs> Pod Podcasts. Oh, that's a tough one. Pizza or sushi? Pizza. Platter stripes. Stripes. <laughs> Yay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> now you guys know all my passwords to my bank accounts. <laughs> okay. Stripey Labrador girl. So, 69. <laughs> 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 so when I was a little girl, my... And into my teens, actually into my young adulthood, my mom used to tell me that I was so black and white. So I seemed to look at everything as either good or bad, and that I either loved or hated things. Can I time out for one second yes. just to say that I find that deeply ironic because you are the most colorful person okay. in the world. Literally, like, <laughs> I think of you as just color, color, color. I would never think of you as black and white, but I know what you're saying. Okay. No offense, Lisa's mom. <laughs> So I do remember this being true, right? Mm -hmm. And that, a, and a very deep source of internal conflict for me as I was becoming an adult, because nothing is black or white. Yeah. And I would literally try to avoid pain or anything hard or confusing or uncomfortable because I believed it was in conflict with my happiness. And I had this amazing therapist years ago who helped me, who by the way, emailed me six weeks ago because she saw that I was interviewing you, um, and I hadn't heard, like, I, I saw this therapist, like, maybe the last appointment we had was 13 years ago, and she saw me on the CIAS Aww. website, and she had no idea that I had, you know, anyway, Aww. I know, it was kind of a moment, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's always nice to show your therapist that you've done well. I know. You know? Exactly. Um, They're like so, the ultimate kindergarten it's teacher. true. You're like, look what I became. And I speak of her often, even in my public talks, so she was really uh, amazing. And so she, one of the things she helped me do was sort of hold the stuff in life that was both very hard and challenging and confusing with the beautiful stuff, even if it was in conflict. Mm. You know, so for example, we have complicated relationships with our family, and... I learned that I could both feel anger and people in my family for things that had happened to me in the past, but also love them with my whole heart. Mm. And in fact, doing that helped me to release my pain. And so one of the things I admire about you and what you talk about is your advocacy for this idea of making space for pain and happiness to coexist together. Mm -hmm. Because I truly believe that, that that is actually one of the keys to sort of more relaxed, happy living, right? So can you talk about that a little bit and sort of how you came to that realization? I had such a great experience once um, at, the, at a 
retreat where there was a female, an elderly female monk speaking, and she was taking questions from us, and we were like very anxious monkeys um, in the audience. We were like, but what about, what about, you know, we were all like throwing out questions and we're, and she's trying to explain how the universe works and she's trying to explain, and we're like all throwing, we're all like sort of lawyers, but also children, you know, because we're like, but it's not fair. But what about, but if, but if God is good and loving, then why is there pain? And, if, and we're all like tangled and twisted up. And at one point she just looks out at us and I will never forget it. She says, look, we're all adults. There are paradoxes. <laughs> And I was like, oh. And I was like, oh, this is now adult talk. You know what I mean? Because that is true. We are all adults here. There are paradoxes. In fact, only paradoxes. Um, and, and the more comfortable you can be with paradox, and I think of it as like, almost like a battery. There's a positive and a negative charge that needs to be... And it's beyond yin-yang because it's not as balanced as that. That makes it look very pretty. And it isn't. It's, if you took yin-yang and you put it in a Cuisinart, <laughs> you know, it's like, just wear weight. There's, it's all so mingled up in, inside of itself. Um, and I think that, that the beginning of that sense of that beautiful word, relaxation, that we're, you, you were using is to stop expecting the paradoxes to resolve themselves, mm. you know, um, stop demanding that that it all be tidy, um, because it isn't going to be. And a question that I find myself living into lately, more and more and more, is how comfortable are you with having open wounds? Um, and this is what I feel like when I'm in prayer and meditation and contemplation, when I'm asking to be fixed, when I'm wanting to be smoothed out and I want pain to be taken away and I want, you know, I want unresolvable dilemmas to be resolved and I want answers on how to resolve them. Please send me the, the form that I have to fill out to get the answer to how I'm going to resolve an unresolvable dilemma. I'd like it, please, by end of day, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, these are the kind of demands that I make on the world and on, and, and what, what I've, in a very deep, silent moment of contemplation recently was, I did hear that question come to me. How, how comfortable are you with having few open wounds? And the question itself made me relax. Mm. Um, just hearing that was like, oh, I see. Oh, that's the assignment. I thought the assignment was to heal everything. Um, and weirdly, paradoxically, when you start being comfortable with having open wounds, the wounds heal, you know, but, but the only way sometimes is to sort of relax into it and be like, yeah, this can't be fixed. This can't be resolved. I can't do anything about it. And my open wound links me to yours and to everyone else's because I, I don't know any of you, but I know that you all have them. Um, and, and so I can sit in a room with somebody. If I'm comfortable in my own, with my own open wounds, I can sit in a room with yours. And I don't need to fix yours to make me feel more relaxed. You know, so we can just be together. We can just be, we can be all right. Um, and you don't need to know why. Yeah, you don't. Well, you might need to, but you're not going to be told. <laughs> So if you need to, you're going to be in trouble. Um, but yeah, you, you will not be told why.
So here's another one. So one of the best pieces of, it, pieces of advice that I have ever been given was to sort of leave my self-importance at the door. And I think in particular, you know, my own struggles as an artist and in life have been a direct result of some sense of self-importance, mm. right? And I think this is probably true for many people. And yet, when I follow this advice to leave my self-importance at the door, my experience instantly is transformed. For the, the better or for the worse? For the better. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I was just checking. Yeah. The ego is a very dangerous thing. Yeah, it's a great servant, but a terrible master. And, you know, you can't... Don't leave the house without one. Right. You know, because you need, in this apparent world of form and matter, you need one because you, it's like a sort of costume you put on to go into the world and have... And you and I can sit here and you can pretend that you're Lisa and I can pretend that I'm Liz. Um, secretly, I suspect that that is not at all what's going <laughs> on here. And that's not all what we are, but, like, we, we have jobs, we have lives, so we're pretending that... I'm agreeing to pretend right. that you're Lisa, you're agreeing to pretend right. that I'm Liz, we're all agreeing to pretend that we're in California. Um, you know, and, and you kind of have to do that to sort of get through. That's a really good use of, of, of an ego, okay? I need, like, this is the costume I wear in the world, you know? Um, better to have a soul as your master than an ego. But, but you can't, I mean, till the day that we both achieve total enlightenment, which should be, like, sometime next month, I think that we're probably going to have egos, you know? Um, and, and again, it's a kind of, can I have a friendliness toward myself about it rather than being at war with it and recognize this is part of our shared humanity, but I'm not going to let this thing drive, you know? And when it's driving, I know it is because I'm unhappy. Um, and when my soul is driving, everyone's good. And I think, too, like, with our creative work, often this idea of things needing to be important or a approved of yeah. or given validation or gets in the way of the creativity itself. It does. It's hard to get rid of it. And again, I mean, I, I know I'm, keep, I'm sort of railing on this. Friendliness towards yourself for those feelings is paramount. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, like for instance, here's how I practice self-friendliness in the matter of wanting approval. I would love it if my books got great reviews. And I would love to sit here and tell you that I don't care. Um, but after nine books, I still really do care. And, and, it, and here's how I've figured out how to handle that. Um, I told my publishing company, um, I don't know why I just called it a publishing company. That sounds very 19th century. I told the publishing concern. Um, you know, I said to them, you know, uh, I actually really do care what people say about me. Um, and I'm working on that, and that's going to be a lifelong process. I care about it less than I used to, but I do care, and, and it can hurt. So if you see a really good review, let me know, because it's going to make me feel really good. And if you see a really bad review, don't just tell me to stay away from USA Today today. <laughs> like, just let me know, because I don't need... It's hard enough to do work, and, and I don't need anybody out there confirming my worst opinion of myself. And John Updike said very beautifully that um, reading your own reviews is like eating a sandwich that might have some broken glass in it. Um, <laughs> so I just said, just watch out. Like, if there's broken glass, like, I don't, I, I don't think it serves me. And I know that, like, there would be a school of thought that would say the only reviews you should read are the bad ones so that you find out how to be better. I don't get better by being attacked. Mm. Um, I really don't. Like, I get better by being loved 
not loved, not admired and revered. I get better by my friends taking mm -hmm. care of me. I get better by believing that maybe it's okay that I put my work into the world. So, so until the day, once again, when I achieve total enlightenment and I'm floating three inches above this carpet, <laughs> I also have an obligation to this being to take care of it and to be kind to it. And that means recognizing like, oh, its feelings get hurt. This monkey's feelings get hurt when bad things are said about it. So I'm maybe not gonna read the comments, you know? Um, and, and so there's like a, I'm a stu my primary, I don't know what my role is in your life or in any of y'all's lives or in, even in the lives of the most intimate people in my life. I know for sure that the one human life that I was given stewardship over to take care of is this one. Like that I know. And I know that when I practice self-abandonment, I do great harm to this human being. So I really don't do that anymore, you know? Um, and, and, and that means like a universal kindness. So in the last couple of years, you've been speaking out regularly about stuff happening in the world, in particular about American politics. And what I love about your voice is your attempt to encourage understanding over polarity. So can you talk a little bit about staying in conversation with those who have different beliefs? Like how yeah. in the world do, you, do we do that? I'd love to know um, because... <laughs> You know, look, I know this. I mean, I know that the line I'm trying to walk, you know, there's a, there's a, a sort of a, 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 there's a sort of a spiritual blindness that we can get where we can take a spiritual shortcut around the difficulties of the world and be like, hey, we're all the same and we just have to love each other and be kind to each other. And, and if, you, if you drift too far into that, then what you're doing is not being a steward of people who are suffering at the hands of other people, right? So you've got to show up for the, um, for, but there's a way to do it and it's been modeled for us by the masters over the centuries. There's a way to do it where you are a relentless advocate for humanity and justice mm. without savaging your opponent. Um, there is a way, it, it, it is master level spiritual stuff because it's very hard to do. And it's very tempting to vilify. Um, it's so easy, it's so easy to vilify. It's so, and, and these days, like it's very hard not to look upon your opponents as being evil because a great deal of evil is being done. Um, so my first step that I do is, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the work of Byron Katie, but I will sit down and I, before I will speak about a political, opponent or a political idea that I'm against, I will sit down and I will do a Byron Katie worksheet on, on that. Um, and so an example would be, uh, like I remember just hating Paul Ryan so much that I wanted to drown him. And, <laughs> and I was like, he's, he's greedy and he's, he's greedy and he's, and he doesn't care about poor people. This seems very true, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's hard to negate that. But before I go after him, for that, I have to ask myself where I am greedy and do not care about poor people. Mm. And it is not hard to find. Um, I am sitting here wearing a pair of $350 shoes as I'm talking to you. I chose to buy these because I liked them more than the idea of giving $350 to somebody who needed it. Mm -hmm. And I have a closet full of evidence of times where I decided that 
actually, no, I'm going to keep that for myself. Um, I don't need it. You know, and I'm not like, I'm not Imelda Marcos. I don't have a thousand pair of shoes, but I have about 20 more than I need. I have everything in my life about 20 more than I need. And I routinely look at people who are suffering and decide, I'm not taking that one on. I, you know, I'm not making that my problem. This isn't my problem. I do this every single day on the regular. So this doesn't mean that Paul Ryan was not greedy and doesn't care about poor people. It just means I can dial down the fucking self-righteousness a little bit before <laughs> just dial it down and make sure. And it's, it's part of what my friend Martha Beck calls the integrity cleanse. And I did a big integrity check online recently during the whole Kavanaugh yes, hearings. I remember that. Which for me, like, because I was, I was getting, it is so easy to get high on the crack pipe of outrage. And it's sitting <laughs> right there on your phone and you can smoke it all day. <laughs> and, you can, and you can pass it along with your friends and you get very high and then you get very self-righteous and then you add to. So before I made my position on that clear, I had to do my integrity cleanse, which meant... Did I give Bill Clinton a total pass on being a total skank yeah. about women? Absolutely I did. You know, why? Because he was my guy. Do I know the names of the women who accused Bill Clinton of sexual assault? And was I saying hashtag I believe her then? No. I don't even know their names. Mm. I remember vaguely that there were a number of accusations, but I don't remember their Like, so calm down, Liz, mm -hmm. right? Like, if I had the chance to put a lifetime Supreme Court appointee on a court for the next 40 years who agreed with every single one of my values, would I be willing to overlook all kinds of malfeasance to just get that person on there and make sure that my value, that my core values are being represented? Hell yes. One after another, I went through every, so it doesn't mean that that went, that that hearing went well. It just means before you engage, before you enter into that arena, check yourself and then figure out how you're going to dialogue about this in a way that owns your own fallibility. That's what matters to me, if that makes sense. Yes. And then, and then be an activist, right? And then be an activist, and then be an advocate, and then fundraise, and then do it. But like, that's the dial that I'm constantly trying to work with. We're gonna shift gears a little bit, and I would love to know what a tip. This is a, what a typical day looks like for you, like when you're home. Yeah. Do you live most of the time in New York? I don't live most of the time anywhere. Um, I, I'm never really anywhere. I'm always somewhere, but never really anywhere. Um, but I do have, I mean, if I'm writing, which I only do every couple years, um, because I, I tend to like do a whole bunch of backloading of research before I sit down to write a book. So when I'm actually in the process of writing, that's for a few months every couple of years. Where, and then that's a very different day than the day that I would describe to you. Those, those days I'm in isolation. I'm very far away from the rest mm. of the world. I don't talk to anybody. Mm. And I'm j it's just me and the project till it's done. That's how I do it. Um, it is not the only way that things can get done. It just happens to be how it's always worked for me. Um, so, and there's a huge amount of preparation that has to go into that. But my normal everyday day... Um, I've actually finally gotten a meditation practice going, um, really only since Rhea died, and it's part of communion with her. Mm. She and I used to do morning prayers together every morning, 
and I miss it so much. It's so devastating to miss that. And and we would that's how we connected with each other and how we found out what the other one was feeling and what was going on. And so I've replaced that now with like a 50 minute meditation that I feel like I really do with her. Mm. Um, every single day for the last 70 days, I have danced. Um, I'm <laughs> every single morning I dance. This is very new behavior and um <laughs> and and again it's something to do with healing mm -hmm. and it's something to do with this increased understanding that i have that this body is not just a broomstick with a jar with a brain in it um <laughs> like which is mostly how i've treated my body most of my life that you carry the broomstick around to put the brain somewhere else um and and that it actually this whole thing has its own life and its own kind of miraculous landscape so so i dance um and then I start making phone calls to all my friends and I spend probably half the day on the phone um, because everyone's always got a problem and I've got a problem <laughs> and we're always getting, you know, having to check in with each other. And, um, you know, I eat a lot. What else? I, I, uh, um, I take my dog for a ton of walks and I go to bed really early. And What kind of dog do you have? Well... I inherited Rhea's dog, so I ended up with a French bulldog, which is not what I would have chosen. Um, and may I say, he feels the same way about me. And, um, and What's his name? His name is Chunky. He has some body dysmorphia issues. Um, he and I were really... And I'm a dog person, as we've established. Um, he and I were really not fans of each other. And I disapproved entirely of Rhea purchasing this dog um, when she got him five years ago because I was like, you don't buy dogs. Like, that is a rule. You do not buy dogs. You go get a dog out of a shelter. Like, you don't go buy it, a designer dog with no face. Like, um, and, and dogs should have noses and they should have tails. He doesn't have either. His butt and his face look exactly like. And, and dogs should be really affectionate and he's not. And... He's French, you know, so he's, <laughs> and, you know, he and I just like, and he looked at me and we, we like took each other's measure and we were like, yeah, I'm not into you, you know, and, um, and then I moved in with her and he was like, seriously? And I was like, yeah, man. And we <laughs> competed for her attention and then we slowly figured out that the other one wasn't so bad and now he is my soulmate. <laughs> um... And we spend every minute of the day six inches away from each other. Um, and That's wonderful. Yeah, I would give a kidney to him. <laughs> and probably will have to someday because he's a French bulldog. Yeah. Um, but I, I always feel like when I first started walking down the street, I always want to be like, I didn't buy him. I didn't buy him. <laughs> so one This last wasn't my idea. <laughs> one last question before we take audience questions. I read something once you, you wrote which really moved me, and it was a story about you being on a crosstown bus. Oh, yeah. my God. And a bunch of tired, oh, cranky fellow passengers, and the bus driver got on his loudspeaker, and he invited everyone as they exited the bus to leave their troubles and worries in his hand. Yeah. And you saw the energy on that bus completely transformed. People were laughing, and they did exactly as he said. And it got you thinking about this essential question of, like, what can I do right now to be the light? Yeah. Which I think is 
such an important question right now, especially in these times, which for many of us feel very, very dark. Yeah. So can you talk about that as a sort of guiding principle and how it plays out in your own life? That was one of the most extraordinary things I had ever seen. And the word that I used to describe that guy, he's a city employee. This is a crosstown bus, New York City, rush hour, sleet, November. This is a grim scene. <laughs> you know, and people, this is like the kind of bus where like pregnant women get on and people are like, I don't even see you. Like, <laughs> you can stand, you know. Um, and and he, got on that, he got on that last speed where he's like, I know that this is hard. That's what he said. I know this is hard because we were sitting in traffic. And, and he just said, I want you to know that this bus route ends at the Hudson River. And I'm going all the way to the river today. So as you leave, I'm going to put my hand out. And everybody just drop your troubles in my hand and I'll throw it in the river when I get there. He said, don't take it home to your family. Leave it with me. So beautiful. And when I wrote about it, I called him an influencer. Mm. It's what all of us want to be. And like so many people come to me and they're like, I want to be, how do I get my platform bigger? How do I, you know, and um, that guy was an influencer because he influenced the dynamic and the mood and the energy of every single person on that bus that day. And who knows where that spread when they left and when all of that spidered out to all those people going to different parts of the city not bringing their troubles home with them. Mm. You know, this is not a person who has a, like, he wasn't on social media. He, he didn't have a TED talk. You know, he wasn't <laughs> doing a startup. People are like, I want to change the world. I want to change the world. I'm like, do it right here. Yeah. The only world that you're in is the one you're in right this second. Like, right this second. So there's this sense, I feel like there's this deferral. There's this sense people have of like, me changing the world involves some huge project that I'm going to do 25 years down the road. And meanwhile, the world is happening right around you in every single second. Change it. Like, change it in the elevator. Change it at the gym. Change it at the hospital. Change it right this second. And that will take away your sense of hopeless despair that this thing is too big to transform. Because it can be changed like that. And... You know, look, I, I am very open to the possibility that we're living in the last hundred years of humanity. There's like so many ways that we can really blow this thing up. You know, at this point, like between climate change, like there could be a virus in the next five minutes that takes everybody down. Like I'm listening to this great podcast now called The End of the World that just goes through all the many, many ways, <laughs> including like there's crazy stuff like... There's this sun, there's this flash of electrical energy that flashes off the sun like once every hundred years or so. And if it hits, like all of our electronics will explode, which means like every car will explode, airplanes will drop out of the sky. The last one was in 1840 and telegraph offices <laughs> caught on fire. Do you know what would happen now if it happened? Like my pot, you know, it'd be like, that could happen like, in we'd have like 11 seconds warning. There's that, there's North Korea, there's like, there's so many. <laughs> and yet, I am so psyched to be here mm. and like and and I'm not there's not this I'm not this Pollyanna I don't actually know if we can fix this thing like we really might just be super going down right now you know <laughs> but but if we're going down and the last person whose face I see is yours and we're sitting next to each other I want to be love in the room with you you know yes. so that's all I can do 
Like, and in the meantime, I'll do whatever else I can. But like, let's, when we die together in the apocalypse in the next five minutes, <laughs> like, I want, if you'd look to look at my face, to know that love was in the room. You know, that's it. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the time has come for audience questions. Thank you. We've got time for a few. What is your best advice for handling the support and challenge that comes with living and creating in the public eye? You know, I'm not a very private person, you may have learned <laughs> through my many memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I weirdly don't feel it. Like, I don't feel a difference between the public eye and your eye and my eye. I think it's all the same eye. Um, so just do what you were going to do, whether there was one person watching or 20,000. Um, and it will be received however it's going to be received. You're not in control of that. Um, it can't... I, I don't even know what kind of work I would make if every day I woke up and I was like, I'm in the public eye. <laughs> I have a responsibility to my populace. Like, <laughs> I can't even imagine what... Like, what would I do? I'd be so paralyzed. And, and I'd be so self-important, mm. and, and it would be so stilted and so over-curated. Um, so I don't think I'm in the public eye. I think I'm in the human family. Mm -hmm. So I would just say, take out the words public eye and replace it with human family. How would you make your work then? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. All right, ten and don't, don't get oh. out of limousines with no underwear on. <laughs> Other than that, I have no advice for the public eye. <laughs> Ten-year-old Chloe asks, and actually this is a question I was going to ask that I didn't have time for, so thank you, Chloe. Why did you start writing books? First of all, Chloe, when you grow up, you will be very refined and you will not use the language that you heard <laughs> on this stage tonight. Because you'll know that you don't need to use that kind of language to express yourself beautifully. Secondly, I grew up with an older sister named Catherine, whose now name is Catherine Murdoch, who's three years older than me, and she was and is a brilliant writer. And we grew up in a house with no TV, and we had no neighbors our own age. We lived on a Christmas tree farm, and my parents did not believe that entertaining their children was one of their responsibilities. <laughs> um, and they... And so we really had to invent our own worlds um, to live in. And I had the great good fortune to have this older sister who had an absolutely nuclear imagination. And she was 
I mean, it's hard to not think anyone three years older than you is a genius when you're little, but like she really was a genius because she could read <laughs> and she could draw and she, and she would invent these worlds that we would inhabit and they were really complicated and they were fully formed and we lived in them for days on end. So we were like orphans, but we had pet dinosaurs and, but one of the dinosaurs had polio because she had just read a biography <laughs> of FDR, like everything that she read and we read a lot. So she would take everything that she read and she would turn it into these stories and then we wrote plays and we acted in them and we made books. I started writing books when I was five or six and I still have some of the books that my sister and I made which were just folded up pieces of paper you know with staples but we drew the, the mm -hmm. we drew the, the the cover and then on the back we drew author photos and then we had our and we had reviews like we were imitating <laughs> you know Thomas Pynchon says you know like and we had like about the author and we so the answer is, I never wasn't doing this. I was always doing this. The difference is, and you know what? I bet a lot of people in this audience were doing that same thing when they were seven. Or they were making art, or they were making books, or they were making songs, or they were dancing, or they were writing plays, or they were doing creative things with their friends. The difference is I never stopped. So the question isn't, when did you begin? The question is, when did you decide not to stop? And I remember watching as one after another after another of my really creative friends growing up stopped being creative. Mm. And, and they stopped at high school and then a bunch more stopped at college and then a bunch more stopped after college and then a bunch more stopped when they got married until there were very few remaining. Um, and then a bunch of them have come back later in life, which is really great to see. But, the, but what I would hope for you, Chloe, is that not that you be... I'm not so worried about you beginning because I have a feeling you already have. Just don't be one of the people who stops. Mm. And for those of you who stopped, come on back in. The water's great. <laughs> the doors, the cage doors open. What is your advice on dealing with writer's block? I don't believe that there is such thing as writer's block. And what I mean by that is that we have decided to call it something that, and by calling it that, we've kind of decided that it's like a medical condition. We've turned it into a thing. Yeah, we turned it into a thing. We're like, oh, writer's block, that's a thing. It's like, <laughs> it's like tennis elbow, you know, or, um, you know, oh, that's a thing that writers, get. you can get that, you can come down with that, you know, um, and, and what's the cure for it? There is such a thing as it, but we've given it the wrong name, and the name is fear. Mm. Um, and, and it's just fear in disguise. So for me, when I have block, the question is not, how do I stop having writer's block? The question is, what am I so afraid of right now? Um, because that is the only reason that I am not doing the work. What am I scared about right now? Am I scared that this is boring? Am I scared that I've already written something like this? Am I scared that people aren't going to like it? Am I scared that I'm losing my touch? What is the fear? And then I invite that fear into the room and I talk to it very lovingly. And, and that's the only cure that I know for writer's block. But I think the first cure for writer's block is to stop calling it that. Um, because it makes it sound like it's like something you'd find in the DSM, you know, and, um, and that's not what it is. You know, fear comes in many disguises. Writer's block is just fear with a fake mustache, like, oh, I'm fancy, I'm writer's block. <laughs> you're not fancy, you're just fear. You're just fear. It's all it ever is. <laughs> okay, one more. I'm the mother of a toddler. I deeply miss writing, but no longer feel the energy to do so. Shooting myself isn't helping. 
Shooting myself? Shooting. Like, oh. you should be doing this. <laughs> That's weird, because usually it helps. Um, okay. Shooting. Shooting. So, help. Question. I mean, exclamation point. Everybody out there who is the mother of tiny children, you are excused. <laughs> Everybody out there who is taking care of a sick person or somebody who has dementia or a family member with addiction, you are excused. Everybody out there who is sick, you are excused. There are seasons in your life where you cannot work creatively. And those seasons will pass. And your toddler will eventually go to school. <laughs> You know, something will change. You know, even, even those of you who are in these intractable situations right now where you feel so trapped, it is the great and horrible thing about life on this planet that everything changes. And the struggle and the anxiety that we all feel is that we either are in a situation where we want it to never change or we're in a situation where we need it to change right away. And it will change on its own schedule, but it will change. So I would suggest that if you want to be a great writer, mother of toddler, um, that you just start taking naps. <laughs> During the hours that you think you should be writing, that you rest. I just want you to rest. I'm not kidding. I want you to rest. I want all of you to rest. You're all tired. So just going to need you to just get very disciplined about napping. <laughs> and, I, and I want you to get an app, and I want you to have a friend, you know, hold you accountable for your naps. <laughs> I want you to get some sleep, and I don't want you to exercise. <laughs> and I don't want you to be having green juice. I just want you to rest. <laughs> and I want a friend to spoon feed you macaroni and cheese for a few days. <laughs> I just want you to rest, and after you've rested, and that might take a couple years, after you've rested, you will wake up one day, and you'll be like, hmm, I want to make a thing. Yeah. And that will be when you begin. Yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.